Hello and good evening, you wonderful geeky people. Welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. This is Reggie, here again with another hour of geeky news, views and reviews. We've got a lot of news this week and a lot of reviews this week. In fact, we're a kind of news reviews heavy show with the Star Wars celebration and the fallout of all of that. And of course, more Mandalorian and more Picard. But first, we have to get a bit sombre because... We have lost in the last week or so two giants of the geeky world. And there are perhaps two giants that are not as well known as perhaps they should be. We'll start with the writer and artist Rachel Pollock, who has, as her wife said, transcended to another plane of existence at the age of 77. Um, what do you say? about Rachel Pollock. She was a trailblazer and an icon in so, so many ways, and it, it pains me a little. Uh, first, that she's not as well known as she should be amongst comics readers, and also that she did so little work in comics in the last 25 years. In comics, Pollock is perhaps best known for her run on Doom Patrol, which came after the iconic run on the book by Grant Morrison, who is notoriously a hard act to follow. And this was, in fact, Pollock's first work in comics. This was back in 92, 93, I think. Now, it was that run of Doom Patrol that gave DC and comics in general um, the first openly transgender mainstream superhero, uh, a lesbian sex worker who gained powers after having sex with a super-powered client. Uh, that character, Kate Godwin, named after uh, the trans writer Kate Bornstein and the Transy House founder Chelsea Godwin, uh, was named Coagula. And it's interesting to me that back in the early 90s, nobody really battered an eye. Whereas were Coagula to be created now, I think she would meet with some controversy. Which tells me two things. It tells me, first of all, that Rachel Pollock was very much ahead of her time and breaking new ground, but also that as an audience, we've kind of gone backwards a bit. After Doom Patrol, um, Pollock went on to work on DC's The New Gods, uh, on Timebreakers, on Tomahawk, all for DC, and more recently, uh, she created The NeverEnding Party, which was her first comic book project in 25 years. In other aspects of her life, she was a tireless and fearless campaigner. Way, way back in the 1970s, she got involved in the UK here with the Gay Liberation Front, uh, a group which was demanding, and I'm quoting now, absolute freedom for all. And as part of that, uh, she formed the GLF's Transvestite, Transsexual and Drag Queen group. Uh, alongside um, trans poet, writer, activist Ros uh, Cavani. In 1972, the group collectively put together a piece about transphobia and the trans experience in issue 11, the lesbian issue, of GLF's Come Together newspaper. And she said then, certainly one thing becomes more and more clear as we come together, pass or not pass, we can't let anybody tell us what we are. And I think those are words to live by, whether you're cis or trans or whatever you are, to be honest. Because I firmly believe that being who you are, no matter what anybody says, is kind of the founding principle of being a geek. I'm not equating the two things, but nevertheless. 
outside of comics, and indeed before she was involved in comics, uh, Pollock was also a prolific science fiction novel writer, uh, having penned over 40 science fiction and fantasy novels. Uh, her work has been praised up and down for its depth, its insight, and its imagination. Uh, she took a World Fantasy Award for Best Novel in 1997 uh, for her book uh, Godmother Night, which I have not yet read, but it has just gone to the top of my reading list. Uh, and she also won an Arthur C. Clarke Award for her novel Unquenchable Fire, which has been called a breathtaking work of incredible strangeness. Uh, she was also nominated for a Nebula Award for her book Temporal Agency. In addition to her genre work, uh, Pollock also studied and became one of the foremost authorities in the world on tarot. Uh, she wrote several books on that subject, uh, which are now taught in universities around the globe. Uh, such books including 78 Degrees of Wisdom, A Book of Tarot, Part 1 and 2, and the New Tarot hand Handbook. Since 1980, when the first edition of the first volume of 78 Degrees was published, she has been recognised as a world authority on tarot, and she began teaching workshops on the, the subject. Her contributions to that field have helped expand its reach and popularity, and have made it more accessible to people from you know whatever background. Now, I'm not particularly interested in tarot as a fortune-telling tool, uh, because I don't believe it works. Um, but I am fascinated by tarot as a concept. And uh, Pollock's interest in tarot started when she was a young girl. And she became, as I have, uh, fascinated by the symbolism and imagery of the cards. As she grew older, she began to study the subject much more seriously, um, doing readings and that kind of thing. She also uh, looked into various other spiritual traditions, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, Kabbalah, are all to try and deepen her understanding of tarot. I think it's fair to say, actually, that many, if not all, of the books written since Pollock published 78 Degrees have been essentially recapping her work. That's how influential she has been in the field. Fan favourite writer Neil Gaiman first met Rachel Pollock in 1985 when he was interviewing her for the Today newspaper. And they became very good friends over the following years. Uh, and I mention that only because uh, Gaiman has a story about her that he told in The Guardian. Um, Pollock was Jewish, as is Gaiman. And Gaiman tells the story of how Pollock's Judaism was important to her, but that she fought very firmly against what she regarded as the religion's sexist and transphobic elements. Um, Gaiman says, and I'm quoting now, Rachel and I bonded over many, many things, one of which was Jewishness. And despite being a bastion of the New Age, she was also incredibly Jewish. There's an orthodox prayer that begins, thank you, God, for not making me a woman. And Gaiman goes on to say, I remember her telling me that after she came to following the surgery, she said, blessed to you, God, for not making me a woman, but thrice blessed to the doctor who did. And yeah, there's just an inkling there of the humour of the woman, uh, but also perhaps her determination. So rest in peace, Rachel Pollock. We will miss your insight. We will miss your wit and we will miss your wisdom. But you leave a legacy and we will always have your word. 
And speaking of people whose work we will always have, we must also pause to mark the passing of the great Al Jaffe, uh, a pioneering cartoonist for Mad Magazine, the guy who came up with the folding, who worked for 70 years, more than 70 years for Mad Magazine, retiring at 99. Uh, he has finally passed away at the age of 102. He is the Guinness World Record holder for the longest career in cartooning, fairly understandably. Uh, Jaffe was well known for inventing several of Mad Magazine's most famous regular characters and regular features, including the snappy answers to stupid questions and the aforementioned iconic fold-in, the illustration that ran on the back inside cover of every issue that, when folded, revealed a second hidden image. Uh, the fold-in was originally designed to mock the centerfolds in magazines like Playboy. Way, way back in 2016, uh, the uh, tremendously young age of 95, uh, Jaffe said he believed that satire was becoming harder because politicians felt no shame about lying. Um, he said then, and I'm quoting, I think they're defeating Mad because they're going beyond anything we can think of doing to show the clownish nature of their claims. It used to be that politicians claimed they would make jobs for everybody in the country within two years or something like that. Now they claim they're going to make jobs for everybody on Mars. Um, yeah, I, I, I get his frustration. Born Abraham Jaffe in 1921 in Atlanta, um, Jaffe began his work in comics very shortly after graduating high school. Uh, when he was 20, he sold a parody uh, of Superman called Inferior Man to none other than the late great Will Eisner, the man who, oh, let's be honest, basically invented modern comics. And a year after that, he began working for the not-yet-guy-in-charge-of-Marvel, Stan Lee. Uh, he began going by the name Al during the Second World War uh, as a way to protect himself from anti-Semitism, which is sad but not unusual. During the war, he worked at the Pentagon making pamphlets and posters for the war effort, so doing a similar job, actually, to the one that Stan Lee did at the same time. Uh, he joined Mad Magazine in 1955, three years after its launch, and aside from the famous regular stuff that he came up with, he was also well known for the Hawks and Doves strip, uh, which was an anti-war cartoon that he drew during the Vietnam War. He had a great number of fans who became giants in their own right. Um, he was admired by Charles M. Schultz, the creator of Peanuts. Um, he was admired by Gary Larson, the uh, creator of The Far Side. And, um, you know, satirical comedians from sort of modern American humour. Uh, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert, who aren't particularly well known over here, but they're giants in the US. And they marked Jeffy's 85th birthday back in 2006 by featuring a fold-in cake on the Colbert Report, which was a segment in The Daily Show, which used to be hosted by John Stewart. When he retired at the age of 99, he was Mad Magazine's longest tenured contributor. He never, ever took a staff job. He was a freelancer for his entire life, which, as somebody who works freelance now, I can only respect, because the life of a freelancer is not particularly secure. Towards the end of his career, um, obviously, he was not working as fast as he had done as a youth. Uh, he mainly worked on the fold-ins features, 
uh, each of which took him you know, about two weeks to do. He told the New York Times uh, when he retired that he'd had two jobs in his entire life. One was to make a living. The second was to, to entertain. He said that he hoped, to some extent, that he succeeded. Well, I don't know whether he made a living. The fact that he died at 102 suggests to me that he did. Did he entertain? Heck, yes, he did. He is survived by his children, Richard and Deborah, two stepdaughters, Tracy and Jodie, and five grandchildren, a step-granddaughter, and three great-grandchildren. He's also survived by one of the greatest bodies of satirical work in cartooning and comics. And I regret very much that his name is not as well known as I would have liked. He leaves an incredible legacy, and we can all be grateful for that. Rest in peace, sir. Okay, before we move on to the Star Wars celebration, uh, just a very quick word about the trailer for The Marvels, which has dropped and made me very excited indeed. It follows on from the end of the Ms. Marvel series and explains how Carol Danvers ended up in Kamala Khan's closet. It's basically like it's going to be a sort of archetypal um, body swap comedy with superhero elements. And I'm here for it. Everybody looks great. We, we get to see Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury again. Uh, we get Kamala Khan's boundless enthusiasm again. I can't see this being anything than a massive bucket load of fun. Now, again, we're not doing show notes at the moment. Uh, so I don't have a copy of the trailer embedded in the show notes. But if you go to YouTube and type in Ms., uh, the Marvel's trailer, then um, you'll find it. And it is honestly, honestly, honestly worth watching. It seems that all of the people who hated Captain Marvel and who hated Ms. Marvel are going to hate this. That leaves a sizable audience, of whom I am one. And I am very much looking forward to watching this on the big screen. Speaking of things that are coming on the big screen... So, the Star Wars celebration has happened, and all kinds of things have happened as a result. We've got a trailer for Ashoka, which is the show featuring Rosario Dawson as the titular Jedi. Uh, that's out in August. Uh, the trailer looks good. Uh, we get uh, a bit more Mon Mothma. There's clearly some politicking going on. We've got several references back to Rebels. Uh, we've got Chopper turning up in live action. We've got Sabine chopping up in... Chopping up? Popping up in live action, and of course, the long-awaited arrival, probably, of Grand Admiral Thrawn. I am genuinely very enthusiastic about this. Will they use Thrawn well? I don't know. I have no idea. But I think I, I'm, there have been a couple of missteps, and the Book of Boba Fett was not as good as it could have been. The, the season three of The Mandalorian, about which more later... Not as good so far as it could have been, but nothing's been truly awful. Now, there's been nothing that's just genuinely just bad. So I think I think we trust them. So that's Ashoka. Uh, reviews, obviously, as and when the show is available on Disney+. Plus. 
what else is coming? Well, something that I'm excited for, but that I'm not going to believe until I see it, is a Ray movie. Apparently, this will be set 15 years after the rise of Skywalker, and will feature Ray, now Ray Skywalker, she styles herself, founding a new Jedi Order. Now, interesting narratively, because of course, that's something that Luke did not want. He was very clear. It was time for the Jedi to end. Rey is going against that. But then, isn't it the thing that the young people always ignore? What their wiser elders wanted them to do? And it's entirely possible, of course, that the narrative of this movie could well be that trying to refound the Jedi was in fact a mistake. We have no way of knowing, obviously. It's not got any further than the Daisy Ridley appearing on stage at the Star Wars Celebration to rapturous applause stage. Obviously, all of the uh, We Hate the Sequel trilogy folk have been up in arms about it. And, you know, fine. They're not expected to like it. They are indeed invited to not bother watching. I myself, I'm ambivalent mostly about the sequel trilogy. I quite liked The Force Awakens. I really liked The Last Jedi. I absolutely hated The Rise of Skywalker. So... I think, you know, if you if you average that out, I'm kind of eh, on the whole trilogy. I am, however, a big fan of Rey. I really liked Rey as a character. Uh, I didn't like what they did with her in The Rise of Skywalker. I didn't like the fact that they decided she had to be a Palpatine. I didn't like the fact that she took on the Skywalker name. Although, actually, again, I don't mind that the character took on the name Skywalker. I can see why... They, Ray as a character would do that. I, I just would have preferred it if she'd stayed herself. I, I don't like. I've said this before. I don't like the whole Star Wars is a dynasty kind of thing. I grew up with the original trilogy, and the idea that anybody, even a farm boy from Tatooine who had no connections and no heritage, could be a Jedi. I think. I, I mean, I may. I may be sort of going retroactive on my memories here, but. I seem to remember that I wasn't massively thrilled about the whole Vader is Luke's father thing in Empire. I mean, I was, what, 10 at the time? So I may be projecting my current views back onto my younger self. I know that I didn't like the idea that Luke and Leia were brother and sister, because at the time, I thought that was weird. I guess I've never really been a fan of the whole everyone's got to be related thing. Maybe they'll use the Ray movie to, to move away from this. After all, it's entirely possible that Palpatine was lying. I mean, having having a Sith Lord be a liar, that's that's one of the easiest retcons you could possibly, possibly do. I also have to say, I'm actually looking forward to it because I'm also a massive, massive fan of Daisy Ridley. I think she's awesome. Here's hoping. One note of caution for those of you who are enthusiastic about this and one note perhaps of hope for those of you who think it's the worst idea ever there was a star wars celebration i don't know i can't remember it was a couple of years ago i don't know if it was the most recent star wars celebration but they got patty jenkins the director up on stage with pretty much the same amount of hype uh, and razzmatazz and she gave a whole thing about how you know she was inspired to do an x-wing movie because, you know, her dad was a fighter pilot and she wanted to bring that authentic experience to the Star Wars universe. 
and everyone was really excited, including me. And uh, well, you know, that ain't happening now. So just because it's been announced doesn't mean it will happen. I take the view with all things Star Wars now, and in fact, all things Disney in the wider sense now, as, um, yeah, okay, fine. Like the sound of it, I'll believe it when I see it. Besides, hyped as I am for a Ray movie, that isn't the big announcement for the Star Wars celebration for me. In fact, for me, the big announcement for from the Star Wars celebration has got nothing to do with Star Wars at all, except tangentially, in the sense that it's a Lucasfilm IP, and it features an actor who has played a role in Star Wars. I am, of course, talking about Indiana Blinkin' Jones. Now, let's clear a couple of things up. For, for some reason, this new Indiana Jones film has been announced as Indiana Jones 5. Now, as far as I can remember, there have only been three previous Indiana Jones movies. There was the original, which I'm sorry, just as for me, Star Wars will always be Star Wars and it will never, ever be a new hope in my head. Raiders of the Lost Ark will always be Raiders of the Lost Ark and will never in my head be Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark because I was there when it came out. I remember what it was called. So anyway, yes, there was Raiders. Then there was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which I loved as a kid, but rewatching it now, a little bit racist. It really does still have its moments. There are some excellent, excellent bits of Temple of Doom, but you do have to file it in the this was acceptable in the 80s category. Then there was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which I absolutely adore. I think I think it's only not my favourite Indiana Jones movie because just as whilst I accept that Empire Strikes Back is a better movie than Star Wars, Star Wars was still the first and my first, and I kind of feel that about Raiders. I think objectively, I think Temple of Doom is a much better movie than Raiders. But who's objective about this stuff? Objectivity is overrated in things like this. So those are the three. And, and I've heard something about some kind of fan movie with aliens in it. But uh, oh, clearly, clearly, that doesn't count. Uh, so as far as I am concerned, this is the fourth Indiana Jones movie. And yes, before you tell me that I keep saying you can't moan about stuff that you don't like. Yeah, I'm not moaning about Crystal Skull. I'm simply refusing to acknowledge its existence. If more people who hated things did that, it would be a happier, happier place. At the Star Wars celebration, we got a full trailer for the new Indiana Jones movie. And oh my, what a thing of absolute beauty. They've, they've really leaned into the fact that Harrison Ford is as old as dirt. That doesn't actually matter because... Indiana Jones, when he's not doing the whole thing with the whip, is a professor of archaeology. Now, clearly, professors can go on and on and on and on and on. They're famous for it. Being a professor of archaeology at 80-whatever-it-is is actually not that unrealistic. 
lots of universities keep old professors with a good reputation around, partly out of respect and partly for the prestige, and partly because they've always been there and nobody could really summon up the guts to tell them to go away. So that bit tracks. It also tracks, given Indy's history, that a goddaughter in search of an artefact might well seek out her uh, her godfather and ask his help, particularly with something with Nazi or occult connections. So that all tracks. And everything else is just, yeah, of course. I mean, that really is Harrison Ford riding a horse. I suspect it's not all Harrison Ford riding a horse. But, yeah, old folk can do stuff. They probably shouldn't, but they can. So all of that, fine. I'm quite prepared to suspend my disbelief for all of that. I didn't bat an eye in Raiders when Indy apparently hangs onto the outside of a U-boat for a journey of, well, quite a long way. So that he can do this stuff when he's old? Yeah, fine, whatever. I like that they've brought it forward in time. Yeah, they've aged Indy in real time, more or less. So... That fan movie we don't talk about was in the 50s. This this is in the 60s. Great. You know, that's fantastic. Because I also like the idea that this eminent archaeologist is now himself an old fossil. That's that's great. I like that we saw John Rhys-Davis in there. I, I wish we'd seen Short Round. I, I am still hoping for some kind of Short Round spin-off now that, you know, now that the actor is back doing the whole acting thing, winning Oscars, no less. I mean, obviously they've put all the best action sequences into the trailer, but what I've seen just looks so good. So I'm not going to say any more about it now. I, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to urge you to go to YouTube and watch the trailer. Uh, back in the days when there were show notes, it would have been in the show notes. I haven't got time to do show notes at the moment, but you know, just Google Indiana Jones 5 trailer and just, just watch it and marvel. If you grew up with this franchise, as I did, then you are going to have all the excitement. I was grinning like a Cheshire cat at the end of this. It, uh, uh, can I just say, before we move on to the next segment, how much I'm appreciating, how much of pop culture nostalgia appears to be catering directly at me. We've got Picard, we've got Indie, we've got Star Wars doing great stuff. If you had told my 12, 13-year-old self that 52-year-old me would have access to everything that we've got, he would have wanted to grow old. Anyway, that's that's all I'm saying about the Star Wars celebration. I don't want to bang on too much about Star Wars in one episode, and we've got the Randalorian to review yet. So I'm going to leave that there. Suffice to say, I am enthusiastic about everything they've told me that's coming. Just just a little bit cynical about how much of that we'll actually get. And so we'll see, and we'll leave that there. And since we're talking about Star Wars, why don't we simply move on and listen 
to the haunting distant panpipes. Although it occurs to me, I actually recorded this review very shortly after the episode dropped. And I forgot to blow the spoiler horn. So I'm going to do that now. Remember, we're doing this a week in arrears. So after the spoiler horn, there will be spoilers for The Mandalorian Season 3, Episode 6, Guns for Hire. You have been warned. Spoilers! Spoilers! So, there's been a metric shedload of Star Wars news this week, but that doesn't mean we're not going to review The Mandalorian. We're still operating a week in arrears, don't forget, so this is last week's episode, if you're listening to this when it drops. That's episode 6 of season 3, chapter 22, Guns for Hire. Now, we've definitely had a shift in style this season. We were dealing with a real sort of space western stroke samurai ronin kind of deal now we're much more monster of the week or at least adversary of the week there's an overarching arc certainly but it's a, a different beast season three and i'll be honest i don't like it as much that said it is still good star wars i'm still enjoying it it's still great So what have we got this week? Well, last week, Bo-Katan was sent off by the armourer to walk both worlds and bring back Mandalorians to the Mandalores on Navarro. The Mandalores? To the Mandalorians on Navarro. And she has sort of rekindled her aspirations to rule Mandalore. So off she goes with Jin. And first job is perhaps a little self-serving. She's gone to get back her fleet. The Mandalorians that she was leading and last we saw them in Season 2, who they've since gone off, as we discovered earlier this season, to be mercenaries, because now she she failed to get the Darksaber, they've kind of lost faith in her ability to recapture Mandalore. Although they are very critical of Din and the Children of the Watch for, you know, being really strict about the not taking the helmet off thing, they are equally dogmatic about the ruler of Mandalore having to be somebody who wields the Darksaber, and that the person who wields the Darksaber must have earned it in combat. Now, this is an issue, because she ain't going to fight and kill Din. He, like, I mean, I'm sure she's read the script. Like, the, the show's named after him. He's the Mandalorian of the title. That might be an insurmountable issue. But that's not where we start. We start with perhaps a little vignette that's supposed to show us that the Mandalorians who split from Bo-Katan have slightly lost their way. We see a Quarren spacecraft. The Quarrens are the sort of the ones with the squid heads. In fact, the original action figure was just called Squidhead. And that's really nicely done. The captain is sitting in like a fish tank. And like we open with one of the crew like literally tipping a snack, like a fish, into the, the tank and the captain scarfs it down. It's quite cool. Some really nice creature work. Loved it. Now the ship that the Mandalorians are flying is Imperial in origin. And the Quarrens mistake it for an Imperial ship and them for Imperial warlords. So there's a little bit of badinage and and back and forth as they try and talk their way out of what they think is a shakedown from Imperial warlords. 
But it's actually made clear that no, they are there because a viceroy of the Mon Calamari um, to retrieve his son, who has been whisked away by this Quarren ship. It is soon made clear that this is in fact a Romeo and Juliet situation, but the Quarren captain will not fight the Mandalorian. She knows she can't win, so she tells her boyfriend to go off with the Mandalorian and assures him that she'll see him again. I don't know whether we'll ever get that story resolved, and to be honest, it doesn't really matter. It was a nice little self-contained thing, and it shows us that the Mandalorians that have split from Bo-Katan are not necessarily on the side of right all the time. They're doing this job because they're being paid to do this job. Then we're back with Din and Bo, who are clearly working together as a partnership now. And they've gone to the world where they think those Mandalorians are now hold up doing their next job. A planet called Plazir 15. They approach, their ship is taken over by the central command of the city, and they are guided into a dock where they are met by a protocol droid and an astromech. They're both black, and for a moment I thought they were BT and Triple Zero from Dr. Afra comics, and I'm still expecting to see them turn up at some point. But they just direct Bo and Din to the sort of transport that will take them to the leaders of the city. See that this is a bright, opulent, cushy kind of world. Very Disney world in its 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 presentation. And when Bo and Din are ushered in to see the leaders of this place, who appear to be played by Lizzo and Jack Black, it's a party going on. There's, there's a, a whole banquet. And there's a little bit of badinage again with Grogu, who, you know, Lizzo... I can't remember what the character's name is. It doesn't actually matter. She's a disposable character. Lizzo is, sort of says, can she hold the baby? And, and Din says he doesn't take kindly to strangers. And Lizzo just waves a fish at him. And Grogu immediately somersaults across the table. It's very funny. Turns out Jack Black is ex-Imperial. He's come through the Amnesty program. He was sent back to uh, this planet to essentially rebuild it as part of his rehabilitation. He met Lizzo, who is the queen of the place. They fell in love, they got married, and they've turned this place into a, a a utopian democracy, almost. But it is revealed there is a problem. Yes. The place is dependent on droids. In order to be a utopia, where the people don't have to work, they can just do what the hell they like. Well, then somebody has to do the work, and it's all done by droids. And if the droids are shut down, then this whole thing doesn't function. And some of the droids are malfunctioning. And there's a whole plot involving Christopher Lloyd and functioning droids. And it's all actually rather fun. It does feel a bit police procedural, but there's a, some gr a great touch with the Ugnaughts. There's, there's a scene where the Ugnaughts who maintain the droids are all huffy because Bo-Katan suggests they might have made them up, you know, the robots might be malfunctioning. They take that as an insult. Din draws on his relationship with Quill. And, you know, sort of says, I am Din Djarin, Mandalorian, friend of Ugnot Quill. You will help us. I have spoken. And it all works. And it's, it's, it's just nice. It's just nicely done. It's not a particularly challenging episode, but it's fun. Everything gets resolved and we get to the real denouement. After the droid malfunctions have been traced back to the chief of security, played by Christopher Lloyd, who is glorious in the role. Uh, and there's a nice little shout out to Count Dooku in his defence of what he's done as well. He turns out to be a separatist, it's a thing. Then, at the end, 
we get the final confrontation between Bo-Katan and Axe Wolves, who is the Mandalorian who's taken over the leadership of the Mandalorian team that used to follow her. She challenges him, he accepts, they fight, she wins, but he says, so what? You say you want to rule Mandalore. Well, you can't, because you don't have the Darksaber, and you can't take the Darksaber, you won't take the Darksaber from him, pointing at Mando. And then steps up and says, aha, if that's what she needs, that's what she has, and hands the Darksaber over. Bo-Katan points out, can't be a gift. And he says, it isn't. And he tells all the gathered Mandalorians, I was defeated. She rescued me and saved my life. She took the Darksaber from the one that defeated me. Surely does that not mean the Saber is now hers? And they all have to agree. And sing. That's it. That's the story. And you know what? It's not much. There's been criticism of this episode online um, because the plot is weak. And, well, it is. But then that's Star Wars, isn't it? Star Wars has never been known for its strong plots. I point you at all nine of the movies. Actually, they've all got terrible plots. Um, Is the plot as strong as previous Mandalorian plots have been? No. But, you know. It's 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 fine. It's, it does its job. The whole episode was entertaining. I liked Jack Black and Lizzo. I don't know who Lizzo is, if I'm honest. I believe she's a popular music artist or something. I'm old. And frankly, I'm more of a fan of Jack Black's mum than I am of Jack Black. And if you don't know who Jack Black's mum is, she's going to be a wonderful woman of science at some point in the near future. Again, it worked. I like that there are parts of the Star Wars universe that aren't all mucky. It's possible that affluent places exist, even on the rim. So I like that. But I also actually liked that that affluence was, it felt artificial, because I think they were actually saying something quite profound there. And the fact that this utopia can only exist on the backs of the droids, but also the fact that the droids were actually quite altruistic when they challenged some of the droids in a bar. You know, the droids say, you know, human lifespan is so short, and they created us. Honestly, helping them is the least we can do. And... That actually makes the whole relationship between humans and droids in the Star Wars universe a little bit less icky, because the situation with droids has been a a bit of an uncomfortable grey area for a while in Star Wars. Are they slaves? Are they are they are they sentient? You know, what's what's the deal there? And we've been dancing around that for a long time. I think this actually took us a little bit forward and made it feel as though the droids kind of serve by consent. Which is still a little bit icky, but it's better than it was. Anyway, overall, it's not the strongest episode of the season. And the season is not the strongest season of the show. It was fun. And what do you want? I'm actually vaguely surprised I'm finding myself having to defend this show. Because, seriously, if this had been on in the 80s or the 90s, We would have been flocking to it as Star Wars fans. It's great stuff. Is it as good as all of the Star Wars stuff that's out there? No. Do I like it as much as Andor? No. Will younger people, like kids and that, like it more than Andor? Yes. Does every bit of Star Wars have to be for me? No. Am I happy that there's Star Wars on that I'm quite enjoying? Yes. Honestly. It's a fun show. And honestly... That's all I'm looking for. Not everything can be the best thing that there is. This is good quality, entertaining, 
storytelling with some solid performances and on, what more can you ask for if i'm giving it was giving it stars it would be three out of five so we move on since we're in review mode why don't we leap straight in to the next one and just consider the spoiler horn well and truly sounded spoilers coming up you have been warned Okay, so this is episode eight of season three of Picard. After this, two more to go. And at the end of episode seven, we left our heroes in a bit of a pickle. Vadik and her changeling crew had taken control of the USS Titan. And, well, all I can say is I don't think they intended anything good to happen. And I was right. Vadik holds the bridge. She also has Captain Shaw, Seven of Nine, and the entire bridge crew hostage. Down somewhere, I forget which section of the ship they're in, and it doesn't really matter, there are Picard and Crusher and Picard's son, Jack, and Geordie LaForge's daughter, Sydney. And then, in engineering, we have Geordie LaForge and his daughter, whose name I can't remember, and it doesn't really matter. Geordie is trying to do two things. He is trying to get control of the ship back from Vadik, and he is also trying to restore Data, who is currently locked in the head of an android that looks very much like an older him, alongside the personalities of B4 and Law. And Geordie is worried that if he breaks down the partition between Data and Law, Law will take over and they'll have a villain on their hands. Narratively, they've done something interesting here because the whole data stroke law plot is coded very much in the writing as the B story of this episode. And it isn't. It's the A story. We'll come back to it because over on the bridge, Vadik, wonderfully, wonderfully portrayed by the awesome Amanda Plummer, is literally chewing the scenery. It's such a gloriously over the top performance. I enjoyed it so so much and she wants jack crusher for reasons she has not yet explained and she's prepared to do pretty much anything to get him to wit she says jack's got 10 minutes to get himself to the bridge if he fails to do that she's going to kill one member of the bridge crew every 10 minutes until either he turns up or they're all dead this of course puts jack into something of a quandary because He's an honourable man. He knows that like, all of this is basically his fault. He doesn't perhaps quite understand how or why, but he knows that it is. And so he's all for turning himself in. Picard and his mother, Beverly, are less enthusiastic about this plan. Picard points out that we do not trade lives. And he also points out that he is clearly what Vadik wants. And giving Vadik what she wants... He's almost certainly going to sign the death warrant of everyone on the Titan. There's also some discussion 
about why the thing that was stolen by the changelings from Astrum Station was Picard's remains. There's also a vague question as to what the hell they were doing storing Picard's remains on Daystrom Station. But that's a different question for a different time. But it turns out they've taken a section of Picard's brain. Now, if you were paying attention at the beginning of the series, the very beginning of the series, we started out with talk of the Borg. And that's been brought up a couple of times since. We know, for example, that Captain Shaw was at the Battle of Wolf 359, when Picard, in the form of Locutus of Borg, was laying waste to the Federation. We know that the Borg put implants into Picard's brain, which may or may not have been the cause of the syndrome that was killing him in seasons one and two. I am told I didn't watch him. Syndrome, which Jack also appears to have. So, rolling out just a bit of a bet here, I am prepared to bet that behind all of this, somewhere, are either the Borg themselves, or somebody who thinks that they can use the Borg to, or Borg technology at least, to dominate the Federation. I think the changelings are a red herring, I think they're probably being used by somebody. But this, at the moment, is mere speculation. What we do know is that Jack is able to look through other people's eyes and control their actions. We know that because he's done it. He did it to Sydney so that he could save her life because he's better at fighting than she is. Jack and Sydney point this out to Picard. And Jack says, you know, if he can get into the head of somebody on the bridge, he can input Picard's override control and take command back of the Titan. They try this and they almost get there. But Vadik notices it happening and is impressed amused, and perhaps a little bit cross. This is the point when she decides she's going to kill her first hostage. And so we get another scenery-chewing manifestation of evil as she forces two of the bridge crew to their knees, demands that they tell her who they are, and then just randomly shoots some other guy. And here we see that whatever her grievances... And they may be genuine that the, the, the changelings were not treated well by the Federation. They really were not. But whatever her grievances, here we see finally and once and for all that Vadek is pure evil. She's a sadist. She enjoyed inflicting the fear and the suffering on people. And so she's now unambiguously the bad guy. And yeah, has been coded as irredeemable. So at this point, as a viewer, we don't care what happens to her. We've all watched enough Star Trek to know that when they write a character into that corner, nothing good is going to happen. So there's a bit of foreshadowing for you. Meanwhile, down in engineering, Geordie is struggling to figure out how to bring data back. They need him. But Geordie is concerned that if they bring back law instead of data, then he's dooming everyone. By now, Picard and Jack and Beverly have made their way to engineering, and Picard makes the very simple point that, look, if we do this and law materialises, yeah, we're all dead. But if we don't do this, we aren't going to be able to take control of the computer. We need data's positronic brain to do that. Only data 
has the capacity to do all the calculations to break all the codes. So if we don't do this, we're dead anyway. Give it a go. And so we venture into the mind, the split mind of this android. And of course, we see data and law represented both by Brent Spiner. And law, in his arrogance, is completely convinced that this is not a contest. He is going to wipe data out. And indeed, it seems that that's what he's doing. And data seems to be surrendering because he keeps giving law his memories. These memories are, he says, the things that define him, the things that make him him. And law mocks data for hanging on to such sentimental garbage, but takes all of these things. And if you've been paying attention to what data's been saying, you will not be surprised by what happens. Although law seems to take control, full control, of the android body and data appears to have been wiped out, what data's actually done by giving law everything that makes him, that makes data, data, he's effectively taken control of law. And so it is in fact law who is wiped out and data who takes full control of the android body. And at that point, everything becomes slightly easier for our heroes. Data, of course, immediately is able to take control of the ship. They drop a force field around all of the Starfleet personnel on the bridge and then open up the evacuation port and all of the changelings on the bridge are sucked out into space. And at this point, we see why Varek was shown to be so irredeemably evil. Because we see Varek, we actually follow her body as she drifts out into space. We see her freeze in the absolute vacuum and absolute zero temperatures. And the, the, the momentum of her being blown out of the Enterprise takes her towards the Shrike, where her solid, frozen form hits the bulkhead and shatters into many, many, many pieces. This, surely, is the end for Vadik. Well, maybe not. Changelings are pretty tough. Maybe only one little piece needs to survive. Nah, don't worry about it. Captain Shaw takes care of that. They, um, having taken control of the Enterprise, immediately open fire on the Shrike and destroy it. That's probably the end of that. I don't know, guys. That seems to me to be a bit of a waste of a perfectly good villain. But, whilst that would normally be the denouement of a Star Trek episode, there is more to come, because now Councillor Troy comes face to face with Jack Crusher, and Councillor Troy talks to him about the visions he's been having and the red door that he keeps seeing, the red door that he is afraid to walk through. And so at the very end of the episode, metaphorically, I suspect, I think this is probably happening all in their minds, Deanna Troy takes the hand of Jack Crusher. And they walk through the red door together. What will they find on the other side? Well, we have to wait until next week's episode, which, if you are listening to this on the day that it drops, is in fact out today on Amazon Prime. Uh, although, if you want to watch it for free, you've got to wait until tomorrow, Friday. Honestly, I can wait. It was a good episode, though. I really enjoyed it. It was a proper Star Trek fighting episode, where 
Everyone was doing the level best they could to save as many lives as they could, but everyone was prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice because they're Starfleet. There is a moment on the bridge when Lieutenant Muir, who was the member of the bridge crew that Jack took control of for a second, he's caught trying to put in Picard's override codes, and with a gun to his head, Vanek commands him to tell Crusher to come up to the bridge. And Lieutenant Muir says, I can't. And Vanek says, why? And he says, because I'm Starfleet. And I don't know, I think the whole episode was partly a celebration of the unity and the comradeship of Starfleet as an organisation. And yes, it's a romanticisation of the the camaraderie of the military, but uh, Star Trek's always done that a bit. And it's a thing that I, I kind of like to believe is a thing, if that makes sense. And the destruction of the changelings and the, the, the death of Vadik also opens up a question. We know that Vadik was not the boss. We know that Vadik was reported to somebody. But now, clearly, that somebody has a plan to do something at the Federation Day parade, which they don't need Vadik to do. Which, again, leads me to think that this is not changelings in charge of this plot and that we might see another big bad yet. And everything kind of points to the Borg. So there's a bit of me actually quite a big bit of me, actually this is really what I want to happen, that thinks, well, okay, maybe this is it then. Maybe this is going to be a Borg attack. And perhaps we might even see Voyager strutting her stuff again. After all, the USS Voyager was specifically built to fight Borg. So (sighs) we've had lots of mention of, of Admiral Janeway, um, Seven of Nine is the only non-next-gen, non-new character featuring in the show. Everybody else is either part of the Next Generation Farewell Tour or their new characters created specifically for this show. Seven of Nine is the only anomaly. Is that just because Jerry Ryan was under contract and available? Possibly, but no, I think there's more to it than that. I think there is Borg action ahead. There's only two episodes left, but I don't know. I think that would be a really nice way to round out Jean-Luc's career, to finally defeat the Borg. All speculation, of course. I guess we will start to find out next week. And so until then, I guess, time to move on. Okay, just enough time to squeeze in some comics recommendations. Now, I am recording this on Thursday morning, which is later than I should be. But still, the delivery of this week's comics has only just arrived because the people who distribute comics in the UK, Diamond UK, have um, a real problem with bank holidays. If you have a bank holiday, it throws them completely askew. If you have two in a row, as we did last week, well, last week and this week, it throws them utterly for a loop. So the comics that should have arrived on Tuesday, in fact, have literally just arrived. I mean, as I record this, I took delivery five minutes ago. So I have not had a chance to read any of the new comics for this week. 
Uh, they do look good. I've read all the solicitations. It's going to be a good rack this week. Do get yourself down to Destination Venus and have a look. But I'm actually going to talk to you about a couple of comics that came out last week because I didn't have time to do comics recommendations last week. So the one I really want to highlight is The Nasty by John Lees. Unfortunately, I can't sell you a copy of this because it's sold out. And to be honest, you're going to have a problem finding it anywhere. There will be a second print, though. So keep your eyes open for it because it's great. If you like horror movies or if you grew up watching horror movies, particularly if you watch them in the 80s and 90s, this is a book that you will recognise completely. The central character, a kid called Thumper, is 18 years old, but he still has his imaginary friend. His imaginary friend is the star of his favourite slasher movies. And that's weird, but okay. But then, the horror movie club, the horror movie video store that he gets all his horror movies from, gets hold of a copy of... The most evil horror movie ever made. A movie that's got such a reputation. It's not only banned, but most of the copies ever made have been destroyed. But this whole thing about it being cursed, that's just pretend, right? Right? Guys? Right? It really is. It's a great horror comedy. Uh, if, As I say, if you grew up watching slasher movies in the, seven, in the 80s and 90s, as I did, you're going to love this. If you didn't, you're probably still going to love it, because it's great. You'll recognise all the tropes that we do have in stock. Uh, and that I also recommend is Scar, telling the backstory of the Disney villain from The Lion King. This is the first in a whole series of comics that are highlighting Disney villains. And we go back to the days before The Lion King is set. Simba has just been born, and Scar is furious that... He will now not ever succeed Mustafa to be the Lion King. This is a story that focuses on his ego and his resentment. And do you know what? I'm not a Disney guy, but I really, really enjoyed this. So those are my two recommendations for this week. That's The Nasty. And this is simply a heads up to keep your eyes open for the second print. And Disney villains Scar. Both out last week and Scar still available. Heaven help us, we are now running out of time. So, uh, a quick apology that this week has been somewhat disjointed uh, for reasons I won't go into. Uh, I haven't had the, the time I normally have to put together the show. And given how disorganised the show normally is, well, it was bound to be even worse this week. So apologies for that. We will be back to normal next week, I think. Glance over at the Geek Community Notice Board tells me that there is loads of stuff happening still at um, Geek Retreat on Oxford Street, and a load of stuff still happening at The Secret Lab. Please check out their social medias to find out more about that. And a very quick reminder that the Geek Pub Quiz is back at Major Tom's Social this Sunday. That's Sunday the 16th of April at 7.30. Don't be late, because you'll miss the beginning if you are. Uh, I think everything kicks off really at 8, but yeah, the earlier you get there, the more time you've got to enjoy Major Tom's delicious pizzas. No, that's not a paid ad. I just really like their pizzas, man. Just really, really like them. In true BBC fashion, I will just note that other pizzas are available. All that remains for me to do is to remind you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a Venus Rising media production, proudly recorded and moderately well-engineered here in sunny Harrogate. We'll be back next week with um, more news, more views, more reviews, another wonderful woman of science, maybe it'll be Jack Black's mum, who knows, and hopefully a bit of a catch-up on some of the things we've missed. We'll see you then. Until we do, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else. Above all else, just stay 
Geeky. See you soon.